Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today in the Scanna studio, I have two folks who are now in, from the upcountry. They're both involved with Speaking Down Barriers, Marlanda DeCan and Scott Neely. And we're going to talk about this organization and how it operates, how it came about in the state of South Carolina. Marlanda, let's talk first a little bit about you personally before we get into Speaking Down Barriers. Okay. So I am originally from Georgetown, South Carolina. Uh, what brings me to, to work in the upstate is I graduated from Furman University. Okay. Following that, I achieved my master's in social work, and through that work, um, there's a lot of ugly you see in the world when you work in the field of social work. And so for me as an artist, I've always written poetry. There's a way that the work that I do comes out in the poetry and people are able to connect with concepts that might be a bit grandiose or a bit scary to them in a different way through connecting to the art. So, so I would probably describe myself as a social worker artist and that's kind of what led to the work that we're doing in, in, okay. in South Carolina. Okay, Scott? My background is in congregations. I um, was not born in South Carolina. I was born in Winston-Salem, but uh, from the time I was a small we'll, we'll, child. We'll forgive you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, from the time I was a small child, uh, grew up in Spartanburg, went to Walford, and then went away to study theology at Harvard Divinity School. And my wife and I returned to the upstate to be near family. And because we, we looked at the world and thought the things that we want to work on are everywhere, but they are closest to the heart in our home, and so this is where we'll begin. I uh, served in a Presbyterian Church, First Presbyterian in Spartanburg, as its director of missions, uh, international and local missions, and then as its um, executive, uh, handling all the administration of the church, the operations of the church, for a total of about 10 years. And in the course of, uh, of that uh, pastoral work, encountered Marlanda. We were uh, at a conference together. It's quite a large regional conference held at U uh, University of South Carolina Upstate. Dr. Jennifer Parker puts it on the Brighter Futures Conference. It's called Brighter Futures? Brighter Futures, and it's about preventing child abuse and then how to address child abuse once it has occurred. I was asked to come and speak about the role of congregations in that. We are all too aware of how uh, prevalent instances of attacks on children have been within congregational settings in our country and around the world. And so um, I uh, offered a few thoughts on that at the conference. And then uh, this forensic interviewer who works with children who have been sexually abused, who is also a spoken word poet, stood up to speak directly afterwards. And that was Marlanda DeKine. And the room was totally silent when she spoke. This poem that she delivered stilled everyone. And when I heard it, I thought, I would love to hear her offer poems at the church where I serve in that chapel space. Marlanda has brought that poem with her today, and I wonder if, uh, if she might be willing to share it. It is worth hearing her read it. Oh, ab absolutely. Want me to go for it? Yeah, go for it. Temporary placements plague the existence of our children. Systems surround them with ideas that their young minds cannot grasp, like, she birthed you, but didn't know how to love you or your father was not yet a man these children. All the alternatives to abortion that my, that my salary depends on, I and their therapist, God, made it my life's work to excavate sorrows and help them build whole like building blocks. I catch their tears each day, hoping I can mail them to the sorry excuses for parents that left them behind, these children. They live in a world where we foster our children like we foster our dogs. We have holding cells, holding cells' DNA of deadbeat creators. We try to read the written chromosomes on the wall. Sometimes my master's level degree cannot make sense out of what doesn't make sense these children. They are tried on like new shoes. If you don't like what you see, keep it moving. They are too often easy prey. They chameleon themselves into what you want them to be just so that for once they can be normal, like the neighborhood kids up the street. The ones they have only known a few weeks. This is why in their adult life, a one-month relationship can be deemed a success. Y'all, so many of these children, they wear open wounds of broken promises and carry salt in their pockets so they won't forget what pain feels like. It has been their only friend, the only one to never turn their back. 
the only one to never turn its back on them like we do every day. I cannot take these crosses from them. These are the things they were given to bear. I can only help them exercise the positive they have, strength, resilience, life, hope the muscles of their heart can someday entertain the thought of love, these children. I tell them, I tell these children about turtles, their armor-like shells, the jigsaw beauty in their backs, how strong those five senses are. I tell them about how mommy turtles bury their baby eggs in the sand and leave them behind. And how when that turtle is born, it opens its eyes, looks around, and heads straight for its home in the ocean. I tell them that their hearts will always know where their home is, that normal is a thing that does not exist. I tell them to be brave, be smart, be the things that they are. And when someone accepts them for who they are, those are the only ones worth keeping. I tell these children daily, you, you child, are simply beautiful. Hmm. Wow. And in your early social work career, you were dealing with abused children. Is that right? That's right. I, I still uh, work very closely with an advocacy center in the upstate. Prior to that, I worked with children who suffer from emotional disorders. And doing that work, I alluded to it earlier, as it's often you, you see a, a different side of people and what can come out of people when children are involved. And this poem was written after... I was told that I needed to inform a six-year-old in a therapy session that he would never be going home again. And so the poems are really connected to uh, the stories and the lives of real people. And that's what we ask people to, to interact with when they come in the room with, with Speaking Down Barriers. Okay. And so at, the, at this conference, the two of you met up. Was this the beginning of Speaking Down Barriers or did that come later? So, so it started out as uh, poetry and conversation, and essentially what was happening is another organization that I, that I helped to found uh, made of, of poets, just a collective of poets called Spoken Word Spartanburg, uh, engaged with Scott's idea of doing poetry in this church space. And then we talked the idea out more and said, well, what will it look like if we present topics like these that are often difficult to deal with and ask the community to come in and hear and interact with the poem? What do you feel when you hear this poem? What does this poem make you think? and to really listen to one another across the different perspectives that we may have about these different things. All right. and, and Scott, how did your congregation react? They were willing, and uh, they still are, and I give them great honor and have great respect for the risk that this congregation has been willing to take. You know, I, I heard this poem and asked Marlinda if she might read in the chapel space at First Presbyterian in Spartanburg. She came and looked at the space with a colleague, another spoken word poet, who was, uh, has been a leader in this also. And uh, they suggested that we engage community dialogue around the poems. The result of that has been this powerful synthesis of very white, upper-middle-class, stone, downtown Presbyterian church and a, a profound band of black, young spoken word poets and community leaders uh, speaking uh, from their experience, uh, speaking about concerns within the community. Uh, and that combination of deep listening and powerful truth-telling through art has expanded across the state and into the Southeast so that we hold uh, these dialogues that are a combination of community discussion and spoken word poetry on college campuses and community centers uh, in congregations uh, and civic arenas, more than 80 dialogues in the last three years uh, that we've held that came out of that first encounter. It's been very powerful. That's that's where you are now, but when did Speaking Down Barriers actually get organized? Yeah, I, I know that you're a 501c3 and you're, you're properly organized, but from the time that you had that, that meeting, how, how did uh, Speaking Down Barriers evolve from that? We began to, to see more people coming into this room asking for other ways to engage. And so outside of the dialogue, there began to be added trainings, these different ways of people engaging the information. And so when we became formally an organization, that happened last year. Um, uh, so that would be June of 2015. Um, and that was taking a program of one nonprofit and realizing that it actually is having a life of its own. I mentioned Spoken Word Spartanburg before. And Speaking Down Barriers comes out of that. 
um, and is now its own entity. I think this is pretty amazing for Spartanburg, which for most of its life was a textile town, used to call itself, you know, the textile city uh, and what have you, uh, to have this nurturing of, of the arts, hub city, spoken word, and now your project. Kind of amazing. So I think that um, it is a remarkable thing to see this emerge in Spartanburg. And I think that it is indicative uh, of something worth noting. Spartanburg is at a moment in its development where risk can take place, where creativity is burgeoning and where people are encountering one another and where someone with a good idea can try it. The work that we do is uh, based in an encounter, and uh, Spartanburg has been a place where that encounter could find its footing and then gain momentum. So when we held the first session in November 2013, there were about 20 people that came in the room to hear these poets and to engage in dialogue. And the conversation was not an easy one. We were talking about racism and uh, not just how do we get along, but uh, where does this stuff come from? What are its dimensions? And is this more than just a matter of the heart? Pushing into questions of uh, ideology and history and how we may be invested in the legacy of racism. Really difficult conversations. And to be having this in a prominent white church in uh, the downtown of uh, South Carolina City, led by a team of young black poets, was extraordinary. Uh, But Spartanburg has sustained that. And I think that it goes beyond that, too. So uh, very quickly from that first meeting, people began to travel from Greenville over to Spartanburg to participate. Um, we had people come up from Columbia, Orangeburg, Charleston to take part. Now, wait a minute. That, were you advertising or is this the traditional South Carolina word of mouth is the best way to get things around? So, so advertising would be through social media primarily and the power of the spoken word community across the nation is that it has a way of connecting to people in different parts of our nation. So so whenever we would share this and say, this is spoken word, but it's spoken word that is actually moving people to see themselves in the midst of racism and how, we, uh, how do we perpetuate and, and how can we actually work to change this thing, poets were seeing it and making the drive to join the conversation. And I think part of what works here is you have multiple communities intersecting. Right. So you have uh, a church, you have a group of poets that really is a very large network regionally and nationally, uh, and you have family, friends, and a community of concerned people. And when these different groups begin to converge, something different happens. Uh, we think that this is quite significant. So we're holding these dialogues. And uh, there's value just in sitting down and speaking with one another. But we think that there's something much more important happening uh, below the surface when we convene these settings, whether it's at a church or on, on a college or wherever we do it. When in our lives have we taken the opportunity to sit down with someone completely different from ourselves, from a different background, who looks different than we are, who thinks differently than we do, and to just listen to them for even an hour, talk about their lives? In, in my own experience and the experience of folks that I've listened to over these three years, those times are very rare, and we can ask why. And I think one of the answers is because our world is not built for us to sit down like that with one another. We live in a world that has for a long time been intentionally structured to separate us, where neighborhoods are, how streets are paved, whether they're paved, where schools are. These are legal decisions. And uh, there is a history here that has separated us on purpose for a long time so that when we gather people together, we're not just meeting to understand one another or to learn to value one another, although those are goals of ours. We actually are trying to construct a space where for a moment we live together differently. And the result, in my view, is astounding. We began meeting uh, for an hour, and very quickly, the conversation spilled over, an hour and a half, then two hours, first 20 people, then 40 people, then 60 people in the room. What we discovered was that two and a half hours of dialogue, the first Monday night of every month, is what people wanted to engage. Anything shorter than that was too truncated. Two and a half hours. Two and a half hours, from 6 to 8.30, every, uh, the first Monday of every month, uh, and it goes even further than this. When we carry people through these dialogues 
And they conclude at 8.30, people will stay longer informally speaking with one another. This, um, the past session that we held, we had to make people leave because the facility where we were holding it had to shut down. It, it is not uncommon for more than half of the group to stay for a half hour or longer, sometimes even up to an hour, talking about what has just been discussed, debriefing what's just happened. We, we think this is where the magic takes place. So we're providing a reason for people to meet and a structure for thinking, but the real gift of these dialogues is the way people engage with one another afterwards on their own, talking, eating, going out for drinks. Okay. Now, let's just pretend we're going to have a session here. Orlando, did you get up and start with your poem, the one you just read for us? So, so, so sometimes it would be a different poet each time, um, and, and sometimes the poet will start. There's a way that poetry can ground people and have us all connect to something that we are reflecting on together, and then we can go further into other questions. But yes, poetry is always present, whether it's at the beginning or in the middle. And then our facilitators are leading uh, individuals into questions, and we're going deeper and deeper into those questions. So what I mean is it may start off with something on the surface, like this most recent dialogue, which was, uh, what's the value of dialogue? And then the question became, well, what are the dangers of dialogue? And then the question went even deeper. What if dialogue is a way to maintain the ideology of white supremacy? What if just meeting to talk is something that we check off and it's not going far enough? And I think when you talk about the stories that people share, when Scott was alluding to those stories, the power of hearing these stories is people now begin to hear into a life experience that is not their own, but then begin to see the structures around our lived experience and then begin to think what they might be able to do in affecting change when it comes to not just our interpersonal connection, but also the institutional aspects of what we're dealing with. Is this something like an exposure therapy? or? Hmm. So I would say for me, for me as the director and facilitator working with our facilitators on, on how to guide people deep into this, I wouldn't call it exposure therapy, but I will say that it's heavily therapeutic. Um, that is what my background is. And I think what we're doing is taking mindfulness and attaching it to truth-telling. And I don't mean truth-telling in some absolute way. What I mean is that everyone comes into the room with a different truth, and they're telling that truth. And that leads us somewhere else. And I ha we have had folks leave and say, I feel like I have just released something I wasn't sure was there. And then we'll have individuals that might say, this is really heavy for me. This hits something inside of me. And I think that hits the heart of what we're dealing with. So there is definitely a therapeutic aspect to this type of work, to be, to be careful with people while we are working to imagine and build something different. Is this a one-off? Let's just say you, you go to Pakalit and have, it, have, a, have a, a meeting at a church there. You just go once? Do you have, I mean, does it continue after mm. the two of you have been there? So, so it shows up in a lot of different ways. Um, the space that Scott was alluding to at First Pres, we're there monthly, um, but we do go into different spaces and do kind of a one-off when folks are saying, we really think we need to get into dialogue, but we're not really sure how. And we've done that in North Carolina. We've done that at various colleges. And we try to stay in touch with them as they're figuring out how they can engage this. And there are times that we go back just to, to check in and facilitate another one and keep folks engaged in it because it's unfamiliar. It's so unfamiliar. Um, and so when we're going into these different spaces, I, I would say that it's not that we're going consistently over time everywhere because we just can't do that. But we're, we're going in, showing them that it is possible and that we can work with them to make this happen consistently. Every dialogue starts with a community agreement and they're two that, that, that are on that community agreement that I think are probably the most valuable. One is uh, that people are, are asked to show up and choose to be present. And so what we always say is, you're physically here, you've done part of that. Now we're going to ask you to stay present in the room, even when things become uncomfortable, when you hear things that you've never heard before, or hear things that you even disagree with, stay present in the room. And then the other is, don't seek to be right or perfect. None of us are. 
We're not going to get it all right. Someone will say something that might offend you. You might say something that will offend someone else. But right now we're agreeing to stay in this room and have this conversation. We watch people do that over and over again. And, and I think that there's a real power in that, the ability to, to stay in the tension um, and work through the tension together. You've got a group of 30 people. Every man and woman in that room has a chance to tell his or her story. Is that the way it works, or is, or, or is it broken down to be? I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be talking with Scott now, and you're going to be talking with Alfred Turner or whatever. Right. So so imagine walking into a room, and there are let's say 15 round tables, seven chairs at each table. We ask people to have a seat wherever they're comfortable. Uh, when we when we go into these questions after our community agreement what people are asked to do is to turn into their group and address the question together. Then our facilitators open them back up into large group, and then there's a time for open sharing and open dialogue across the larger group. And then there's a process of going back into the next question. And then we often mix people up because what do we do? When we come into a room and we're not sure what's going to happen to us, we're going to sit next to people that might feel safe to us for whatever reason. And so we'll say... Okay, now everyone get up and shake it up. We're going to move everyone now before we get to this third question. So so there's this way of, uh, and, and I don't mean to sound, uh, you know, patronizing or anything like that, but there is this way of guiding people into one another and into themselves. But we have it set up in the power of a circle, which has a lot of indigenous and ancient value, but that is how we hold these this would be an example of how that works. So folks gather. Often there's a potluck, so people eat together uh, first. And as my grandmother uh, said, everybody does better when they've had something to eat. Um, but that sharing of food and the warmth of that hospitality facilitates folks engaging in the conversation. So then they sit down, and we've got a series of questions. The questions are very simple. We spend a lot of time honing them. So whatever the topic is going to be, we try to offer a series of very simple questions that invite people to reflect. For example, the first question on an evening might be, what is racism? And there is a very common pattern when we ask this question, whatever the setting is. It's very common for white folks who are in the room to begin talking immediately about hatred, about bigotry, about um, opinions and things that they may have learned from their parents or their grandparents or from the society around them. And it is common to see people of color just listening. Over and over again, this is a pattern that we see. And after white folks have expressed concern about prejudice, bigotry, hatred, a person of color will often say, it's not that you're wrong, but this is one small part of something much deeper. Hatred is just a symptom of a whole structure, a way that our country was built to benefit some people over others. And all of a sudden, we are deep in tension, deep in discomfort. We are in the domain of mutual risk, and you can see people lean in and start to engage one another on an entirely different level. So these very simple questions in this format of sitting with one another and sharing stories has a way of opening up in us knowledge that is incomplete by itself, but when paired with knowledge other folks have, becomes a vastly expanded worldview. It, it can be transformative. So when you talk about tension, as people begin to open up, wouldn't you say that there, there's a mutual vulnerability? I mean, if you, you, you keep using the term risk, Scott, and I was just trying to figure out maybe not necessarily a better word. That's your word. You, you do it. But I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to look for, I'm looking for an answer. That's Certainly. So I'll just give an example. Vulnerability is a perfect word to use. Dialogue is treacherous terrain. There's no guarantee that it will work. And part of the danger of it is that dialogue can be a feel-good smokescreen for not really engaging one another rather than a deep encounter of one another in order to change how, how we all live. And to be just very frank... In a society like ours that was built on slavery and on the genocide of Native Americans, in order to benefit people of European descent, a dialogue that is about feeling good and not about engaging these difficult issues tends to reinforce the power of people who already have it. I know that those are difficult words, but 
I think that that is true. So we speak with law enforcement sometimes, and we will say to public safety officers and, and to law enforcement, we think it's good that you want to engage community in conversation, but in order for it to be effective, you must be as vulnerable as the community members are. The community needs to hear from you what your perspective is, what your experience is, what the risks you take every day in your work are, but you need to hear from members of the community what their experience of policing is, what the legacy of policing in their family over generations has been. And we will help you do that by talking about slave patrols and talking about the role of policing uh, during Jim Crow and segregation. Uh, and this is not to hurt anybody, create a problem for anybody, but it is to force us to look at what is living around us and inside of us so that we can really sit down and engage one another. We need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking to Marlanda DeCan and Scott Neely with Speaking Down Barriers about community dialogue. And it's a process, and I don't really like that word, but it's, um, it is a process. And I'm just wondering, you, you said earlier, Scott, that dialogue isn't always an answer. Sometimes it's, it's just words. And I just wonder sometimes having participated, not in your sessions, but in sessions that are supposed to be, I guess, listening, this all, sometimes they turn into monologues. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. So have you, have you got the ruler to go slap them on the hand? So another one of our community agreements <laughs> is do not be a frequent voice. Um, and, and, you know, there, there are folks who have had a lot to say for a very long time and have invested themselves in uh, conversation, dialogue, uh, mobilizing um, that was much more on the surface. And so when they show up in a setting like what we've provided and realize that it is actually going to go much deeper, there's an excitement of all the things they have ever wanted to say about the topic. But I think that's the power of having effective facilitation so that we can go deep, allow people to be heard and validated without monopolizing the space. I think that is as human to our nature as, you know, we want to tell our story and we can get excited about telling our story, and that that, that can happen. Well, you know, having taught for 40 years, there's always a, we used to call him a spring butt in the class. He's waving his or her (laughs) hand and almost jumping out, you know. Um, That's right. You know, part of what we're trying to do is help folks walk through an experience of how to engage one another that they can carry beyond us as well. So the facilitation that we offer is very important, and we take it very seriously, and we do a lot of preparation and debriefing before and after the sessions. But we also are walking folks through small group discussion and large group discussion so that there is self-regulation that happens as well. We have some fun with it. And we, we, we talk about this community agreement, don't be a frequent voice, um, and um, we'll tease folks about it a little bit and encourage them to check one another, right. you know, because it's just not going to work if one person is, is dominating. That's actually perpetuating the very thing that we're trying to, to transform. And I, I wanted to add, to when we talk about mutual risk, I think, you know, risk can be one of the buzzwords that can sound a bit, I guess, scary. But there is this way that in maintaining the the systems of of privilege and power that we're so used to, that we will go just so far and kind of skim the surface, where when you require people to show up in their full self, outside of whatever leadership role they may have in the community, outside of whatever uniform they may walk in, and you ask them to come in and and let's be human in this space, but not just human, and, and I don't mean that as humanism, what I mean is, what I have to say and what I'm willing to say to you is going to be equally important and equally heard as what you have to say to me. And I'm not sure that we do that very often, risk ourselves in that way. Well, I guess the key really is is learning to listen. Yeah. Scott, I'd like to go to your video. This is, uh, folks, I met Scott through a video that Pat Job, who has been on the show for a number of years, said, sent this video and also one of Marlanda said, you got to look at this. You got, you've got to find out about speaking down barriers. And I pulled him up and watched both and listened to both. 
And I'd almost like to relive those if we could because it was it was very powerful. I didn't have to get any second email from Pat saying you need to have these folks on the show. So, Scott, I'd like you just to, to start and the way you open it because you talk about a message you want to give your five-year-old son. For me, a significant part of the discovery of this work and what I've learned by being in the room has been reckoning with what I teach my children. My son uh, came home from school one day and I said, Ben, what did you learn in school? Uh, He was uh, in 5K, great school. And he said, well, we learned about Martin Luther King Jr. I said, oh, that's great. Um, what did Martin Luther King Jr. do? And Ben, with all of the fervor of, of, uh, of a six-year-old, said, he fought racism. I thought, this is wonderful. I'm doing the work of Speaking Out Barriers. We're looking at all kinds of human difference, especially race and racism, issues of ethnicity and the power structures that surround that. And my son is learning this in school. I said, Ben, what is racism? And he said, I don't know. And it was a a moment of being stopped in my tracks by my six-year-old son, because here I am doing this work. Marlanda and our other colleagues in Speaking Up Barriers come into our home. We have board meetings there. We're constantly planning calendars, talking about events. Ben is very exposed to this. And he's getting this story at his school. He's learning about the Civil Rights Movement. He's learning about Martin Luther King Jr. And although there is a much larger and much deeper story for him to learn, In 5K, he's beginning to get it, but I'm his dad. And until I stop to talk with him, until I take the time over and over again to help him see the world in a different way, he's going to get some of the story, but not what it means. On the one hand, as the father of of two small children, my son Ben and my daughter Anne, there's a part of me that wants to preserve them from this terrible thing. They're innocent, and I want them to be okay. We live in a great neighborhood. We go to a great church. He goes to a wonderful school. He's got a great baseball team. But it is a vastly white environment that he lives in. And even though I'm doing this work, even though uh, Speaking Out Barriers has meetings in our house, even though Marlanda is a close friend of mine, he is constantly drinking in this atmosphere in which his whiteness and his privilege is what is normal. And until I deliberately address that with him, that will be the, the predominant message that he receives. He doesn't even have to try. If I just sit back, he's going to get that message from the world that we live in. And uh, that's not going to change this world. We've got to be very intentional about how we do this. I going to say, I'd, all I could think about is when you were saying he didn't have to be taught. And I bet if you talked to your dad, yes, growing up white in the South, and I'm 72, so I'm growing up in the late 40s, early 50s. Some things were assumed, but some things you were also taught and told. This was the day of Jim Crow. You were not supposed to go, you were not allowed to sit in the balcony at the Sanger Theater, which we thought that was really neat. If you could sit in the balcony, you could sit in the balcony. That was reserved for African Americans. You go into the department store. There's a white water fountain, and there's a colored water fountain. And sometimes kids didn't know, but I, you know, see white kids grab it. If they, good heavens, they're drinking out of the color water fountain. If not their mother, somebody else was. For a white kid, it was could be a social gap. For a, a black child, it could be fatal. So, I mean, the formal teaching of Jim Crow is not going on in white households now. But you're, you're saying that because of being white middle class, that Ben is going to automatically assume things in his life. Right. Un- unless someone, such as his parents, deliberately tries to show him a bigger world, a bigger picture. Yeah. And I, I would add to that, that that while what we know of Jim Crow South is not the rhetoric that you would find in many homes, I will say that the kind of quote-unquote new Jim Crow that Michelle Alexander talks about, that myth of colorblindness, mm-hmm. is very prevalent. And when we begin to disrupt that, and say it's actually okay that you identify me as you see me because this world is structured in a way that it sees me in a certain way. Um, When we begin to see that, then we can actually grab what it is that we're trying to work with and do something with it. But if we're saying that, you know, we don't see color, you know, we're post-racial, 
those are the kind of new buzzwords for the new Jim Crow and, and what helps mass incarceration and other forms of disenfranchisement just to continue and continue and continue. And I think that's what you mean, Scott, when you say seeing the world so that you can do something about it, being able to see. As Marlena mentioned earlier, one of our community agreements is to not try to be right or perfect. And we take that a little further and say, perfection has a way of paralyzing us. We want to get everything right because we're so afraid of what will happen if we don't. And so we don't do anything at all. We urge uh, people who participate in our dialogues not to pursue perfection, but to pursue excellence. Excellence is doing our very best, being our best selves. Not that we're gonna get it all right, but that we give it our very best shot. One of the things that we experience with many white parents is that they're so afraid that they will miscommunicate about dynamics of race, uh, so afraid that they will impinge on their children's innocence, that they don't want to say anything at all. And that is the myth of colorblindness in operation, that if we just don't talk about it, it will go away. Meanwhile, we're absorbing messages from our culture that are heavily racialized. And so what we encourage parents to do uh, is to try to see them for themselves and begin to teach it to their children just by telling stories, just by engaging people who are different than they are. Just try. If you're not doing anything, you're allowing the racial dynamics of this world to pour into your children unchecked. And thinking about the way that spoken word has positioned itself in our ongoing dialogue, you know, spoken word has its history in the black arts movement, but even before that, African oral tradition, the griots. There's a way that hearing into marginalized experiences disrupts the narratives that we've told ourselves or the narratives that we have absorbed culturally. And so I, I really believe that that's what has made this space so transformative is to couple the, the, the mutual risk that's happening in this dialogue with the voice that, that many may not have ever stopped to have listened to. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going back to thinking when we, yeah. earlier in the conversation and you said people in, in Spartanburg are now meeting for two and a half hours or longer, once a month. First of all, that's incredible, but I was thinking in addition to race and class, we're also separated now by technology. How many people actually sit down with somebody to have a meal and talk without pulling out the cell phone or the iPad or whatever. And that's with children, too. That concerns me because a virtual friend is not a friend, and you're grinning. Because um, social media is actually a very important part of what we do. Um, Marlanda is a master at it, and she has been from the beginning. These conversations are raw. They're very honest. They're very difficult. It is not uncommon for someone to come and to say, that was powerful, and I'll be back in three months. People have to choose how long it takes for them to digest what's happened in that room, because for so many, it is a confrontation with an entirely different way of looking at the world than what they, not only what they hold, but what they have learned over decades to be right. Social media allows folks to follow what we're doing and to experience it virtually even, without having to come into that room if they're not ready or if they just need space. So, so you video your meetings and they're, they're going out into the communities where you are? Or they're available if somebody wants to well, log in? What we do is primarily use Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And in using those, we, we have almost a synopsis, so a very short snippet of what happened in that dialogue, along with pictures or video, short video of what happened in the space. We have done some live recording of some of the dialogue, but we try to be very mindful of people's choice to come into that room, and we don't do a lot of recording um, because of what's said. It's, you know, it's raw, it's honest, and it's people choosing to be vulnerable and authentic um, in that space. Uh, we want to honor that. But in sharing the comments that are uh, said and sharing, you know, just one comment that stands out to me that happened in October of 2016, and we, while wrestling with the topic of art, healing, and justice, the question that was asked is, what is the pathway from forgiveness to healing? And so the room is really wrestling with this question 
Uh, Mother Emanuel is, is, is very present in the room because we're reflecting on the artwork of Leo Twiggs, um, the Requiem for Mother Emanuel that he painted. And then this powerful comment comes out, and a woman says, there is no pathway from trauma to forgiveness. The pathway is from trauma to healing. And then the person chooses to forgive. And forgiveness, how do we talk about the pathway to justice? Which then took the conversation into a whole nother depth. Because people, we so quickly want to rush out of the tension, the negative feeling, the sadness that we carry about what happened there, that we want to just say, we remedy the situation and move forward. And she's saying, hold up, stop, wait a minute. When children are abused, we don't say, I'm sorry that happened to you, let's hurry up and you know move forward. Uh, how do we stop and look at what this is in the midst of ongoing uh, situations like these across the nation that are happening very regularly and how do we begin to say this is traumatizing? And so let's stop and reckon with this is traumatizing. Let's look at what heals that, and then let's talk about forgiveness, um, which I think is a different framework than, than what you might hear um, in other places. Well, you know, I'm afraid it's all too often that people want to say, I'm sorry, and I'm afraid just saying you sorry has gotten to be such a trite, you know, Political figures get caught in this all the time. Oh, I didn't, I didn't mean to go on that internet. So whatever. And so apologies have gotten in in, in our current society to be, yeah, they, they're just words. Uh, there was an old Spanish saying is that that uh, oaths are but words and words are but the wind. There's nothing lasting there. Hmm. Scott, you look like you want to say something now. Well, I think we believe in the power of words, but not cheap words words that are heard and felt in the body. All of this began with an act of hearing and an act of speaking when Marlanda offered that first poem. And there was a time in the course of the three years that this work has developed and expanded where we felt a kind of internal pressure and perhaps some external also to conform to more standard, at least our, our own ideas of what standard community organizing or social work would look like. And we let the spoken word poetry piece of this go a little bit. It wasn't always in the dialogues the way that it had been at the beginning. And a strange thing happened. We found that the dialogues felt more dry. They weren't as deep. And we asked ourselves, what, what's going on? We hadn't really even noticed that we had let go of that piece until we stopped to reassess. And we recognized that the very thing that had begun all of this, the power of spoken word, was something that we had begun to take for granted and, and uh, distance ourselves from. As soon as we brought it back into the center of the dialogue, the energy in the room skyrocketed. You could feel people pushed by the expressiveness of the poems, pulled forward by the creativity and the craft of the poems. There's something about the power of spoken word that challenges us because the vividness of the images and the strength of expression from a poet, and that also enhances us, calls out something in us because of that craft, because of the power of the poetry and the work that's gone in to arrive at that moment of, of presentation. When we brought those poems back into the center of the dialogue, it was like being in a different room. So we believe in words and in words that count. Marlinda's got a, a poem um, that is effectively about the work of, of these dialogues, uh, and I wonder if she might be willing to, to share it. Yes, please. Yes, okay. Uh, this poem is entitled, What If? I'm just going to ask that you just, as you hear it, just let it fall. It's a bit of a quick poem. I've been wishing I could write the poem that makes everyone stop and their paths of expertise and ask. What if there is more that I should know? What if racism is all about whiteness and whiteness was developed so white people cannot see it and for black people to believe that they can see it all so clearly? What if my blackness is perceived to be a threat and I begin to believe the same? What if? What if oppression is in the air that we breathe and I've been breathing it in since birth? Do my lungs have filters for oppression because I'm black? Or is it possible that patriarchy and white supremacy can come out of me too? 
What if I have internalized the image of savage so I can't see the beauty in my different hair, my wide hips around behind? What if I believe that white people are inherently evil and I miss the fact that whiteness and white people are two very different things? What if I consider our humanity while evaluating the evil that has come of it? What if I could see the God of you waiting to be affirmed by the God of me? What if race is all about power and it birth bias in each one of us so whiteness gets filtered as oppressor and blackness gets filtered as inferior? What if? What if I realize that it takes hard work and commitment for me to see you clearly? What if hashtag Black Lives Matter gets filtered through the lens of whiteness? Will it look like the Black Panthers and Malcolm X being portrayed in 2016 as vigilante instead of valor? What if I'm a conscious black man that sees Beyonce dance in clothes that she chose? Will I criticize her or will I send solidarity? What if I was Latino or Asian or Indian or indigenous? Would I even belong in this Crayola color box that whiteness has constructed? What if protest is revolutionary and so are intellect, mothering, healing, living, loving, and dreaming? What if? What if politics is a distraction and your civic engagement beyond the polls is where your true work is? What if policy often mutates into new forms of oppression? You know, like slavery, to Jim Crow, to the war on drugs? What if the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, but it didn't have an exception clause? What if I believe that cash rules everything around me? Cream, get the money, dollar, dollar bill, y'all. And I believe that money has more power than I could ever have. What if my black friends and I become the black elite, but racism does not cease to exist? What if? What if the oppressed become the oppressor? Will there still be a movement for lives to matter? Will we say all lives matter? Will we all of a sudden be free from the oppression buried deep within our lungs? Will we know how to love and live and heal and share and be whole? Will we realize that there is so much more to know? Will we know that the human being sitting right next to us might know something that we don't? What if we have breathed in the same air complete with Hotep ideology, Confederate flags, and his story books from grades K through 12? What if Howard Zinn and Hidden Colors taught my goddaughter history? What if my 16-month-old nephew wears cornrows and rocks baggy clothes, his parents work full-time, and his mother is in school for her doctorate? Will you see a baby boy or a baby thug? What if every person with a Confederate flag isn't racist, but it still hurts every time I see one? What if my vantage point is 30% of the full picture at best? What if nationalism comes out of racism and we have not even begun to know how truly dangerous exclusion and power is? What if we stop it? What if we stop assuming that we have all of the answers? What if we realize that critical race theory is only theory and there is nothing theoretical about people dying, whether it is a police officer killing an unarmed black person or white on white crime or black on black crime? What if we stop defending ourselves long enough to be vulnerable with whatever the other is? What if we realize that the bias we carry kills real human people, not thugs or criminals or racists, but actual living and loving people? What if we stopped and listened? What if there is more that we all need to know? Very powerful. Very powerful. All right, folks. AT's giving me the the wind-up sign. I'd like to have some last words. Melinda, I don't think you need... I will give you the chance to last words, but... The, uh, that. Speaking on barriers, we envision a world where people are confronting the wounds of our differences, and we believe that it is possible for us to transform the way that we live together across these differences, and rather than view them as something that is just has to separate us or has to isolate us from one another... We really believe that they guide us into a collective strength and a collective power. And so we we care about every person that comes into that room, and we care about them enough to push them further. And that would be what my last word is, that we have work to do. We're all capable of doing the work, and we're very capable of doing the work when we stop and listen and go together. Okay. Scott? Dialogue can seem so weak in the face of centuries of exploitation and oppression and blindness, legal codes, but we believe that it has a great power because people created all of this. We made all of this up, not just what we think, but the world that we live in and the history that precedes us. People made all of that up. 
and the very idea of race itself is something that people created. It seems absurd to say because we're so used to it, but people created this, and if people created it, people can create something different. I think that's a very good place to end up, and I want to I want to thank Melinda Decon and Scott Neely with Speaking Down Barriers. Thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and normally I say I hope you enjoyed today's journal, but this is another one of those journals where the subject's a little bit raw, it makes you think, it's a challenge, and I hope maybe learn some lessons. So it's not necessarily meant for entertainment, it's meant for thought. Words do matter. Words do make a difference. Who we are makes a difference. Anybody raised in the American South knows that, whether they're black or white or Latina or what have you. And I think what Scott Neely and Marlanda DeKine have come up with, not just listening to them, but watching their videos, I've been to their website, what they do is pretty powerful. And it really boils down to sitting down with another human being, looking at that person, and then listening to his story or her story, and then you tell yours. It's pretty basic. It's also pretty powerful. Everybody has a story, if only someone else will just listen. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The program is produced and engineered by Andrew Shire. The executive producer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.